I want to begin today's sermon with a quotation from a famous poem by T.S. Eliot, the English poet. It's less famous than the one you probably all read in high school. You might remember The Wasteland. But this poem is called Choruses from the Rock, and he wrote it after he became a Christian. Remember the faith that took men from home at the call of a wandering preacher. Our age is an age of moderate virtue and of moderate vice. When men will not lay down the cross because they will never assume it, yet nothing is impossible, nothing. To men of faith and conviction, let us therefore make perfect our will. O God, help us. Indeed. Thank you, Holly. Here we see today the unfolding plan of God for all humanity. Why does the church calendar go directly from the Magi, that is the visitation of the wise men adoring Jesus this past Thursday, to Jesus' baptism? We jump from the adoration of Jesus as a child, the Christ child, to his adult ministry. And indeed, to his commissioning by God, his endorsement, if you will, as God's own son with the good news. Why do we jump this way? Well, because this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his fulfilling what was proclaimed right here on Christmas Eve from John 1. That he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And indeed, that's what we prayed in the opening collect today. In Jesus, we're given the right to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so as we start here into the Epiphany season, because it is a season, we start with baptism, because baptism is the beginning of so many things. It's the beginning of a life submitted to God. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry as an adult. And it's the beginning of our life in the Holy Spirit. So there you are. In fact, there's actually a couple baptisms mentioned in the gospel today. Did you catch it? Look with me in our order of service at Luke chapter 3 and look particularly at verses 16 and 22. Verse 16 reads this way, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then jump down to verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. We'll stop there for now. So you see, there's at least two baptisms being mentioned here. There's the baptism of repentance, that is the baptism of John the Baptist, and then there's the baptism of Jesus the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and with fire. Both baptisms are physical and spiritual, united. 
But Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire completes John's baptism of repentance. Let me say that again, because that's important. Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit completes John the Baptist's baptism of repentance. The two are joined together as the covenants, the old and new covenant, come together in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. And so here we see that actually enacted in a sacramental way, right? In a physical way, showing a spiritual reality. And so when we look at our own baptism, we have to consider three things, and that's going to be the three main points of the sermon. Number one, that baptism is permanent. Baptism is permanent. Number two, that baptism brings life. Baptism brings life. And number three, that baptism is a grace-filled gift of God. Baptism is a grace-filled gift of God. Well, let's start with what baptism is first. It's using water, right? A very common substance. I have a cup of it here, quenching my thirst as I preach to you, right? Water, a life-giving and yet plentiful substance. Water also purifies. We know a lot about washing our hands. Over the past two years, we've heard a bunch about it, right? Water is part of purification, and indeed that goes back thousands of years because God in his wisdom long before man had any science, at least what we call science, right? Long before the scientific method, right? There was God's wisdom that cleansing was an important thing for human beings to do, purifying with water. And so there were all sorts of cleansings in the Old Testament, right? There's the cleansing of vessels, things that are eaten out of, our hands, things that are offered in the temple before, you all, before the high priests went into the temple or the, the tabernacle prior to that, there were these cleansing rituals. Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus is full of them. If you doubt me, go and read those neglected books, right? Full of discussions about cleansing, about all sorts of things. Skin diseases, molds, bodily discharges, scapegoats, the atonement itself. For example, just one I'll cite to you from Numbers 19, verse 9. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of a heifer and put them in a ceremonial clean place outside of the camp. And they are to be kept by the Israelite community for the use of water of cleansing. It is for purification. But then God puts a twist on it, a sacramental twist. The reading continues, for a purification from sin. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Their uncleanness remains on them. And so even in the Old Testament, you have this linking going on of the physical and spiritual, of physical cleaning and spiritual cleansing. So God has put this in his Old Testament law. Why does God do that? Why does he do it? Why does he unite the idea of water with purification and protection from death, both spiritual and physical? 
Well, because God is actually catechizing his people. God is actually catechizing his people, which is a fancy way of saying God is teaching his people not just in what he says to them, but what he has them do. Think about it for a minute. How often does the theme of water come up in the Old Testament? You couldn't name all the places, right? But here's just a few. Parting of the Red Sea. The, the use of water as an agent keeps God's people from death. All of the well stories in the Old Testament, right? The life-giving well stories. We heard one of those back in Genesis when we were, going, when we were walking with Abraham in that sermon series. Water from the rock, right? Do you remember that story? Water's gushing forth from the rock to give God's people life in the desert. Do you think that's coincidence? It's not coincidence. No. This is God teaching his people about sacrament. And we read in our Anglican Catechism this. What is a sacrament? This should be familiar to you, especially if you took confirmation class at some point. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. You see, it's more than just a sign. It's also an assurance of God's gift to us, of his grace. God was catechizing his people throughout the Old Testament, just as Hebrews chapter 10 says, all of that being part of the shadow of things to come. So that when Jesus came in his fullness, they would see exactly who he was and exactly what his mission was as the light to the world and the purifying agent of all humanity. All who would receive him could become adopted children of God. But what about the permanent change of direction? What about that? Well, Hebrews, the Hebrews even understood that there was a difference between purification on one hand and a permanent change of direction in baptism on the other. Right? Think about that for a minute. Put another way, physically, we might wash our hands every day because we get dirty again. But spiritually we might, and spiritually we might say, I confess my sins every day because spiritually I get dirty again by all of my offenses. And yet that's different than the initial repentance that we have in order to turn and serve the Lord. Think about that. We don't rebaptize people every time they sin, right? That'd be silly. Some people think, some people's theology is, is very simplistic and they don't understand this. But it's not like every time you sin, you have to be rebaptized. That's not the case. And that wasn't the case for the Jews either. So when St. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that there is one baptism and one spirit, just as you're called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all in all, just as St. Paul says that, he's building on a Jewish tradition of baptism. Now, really hang with me. We're going to look at the text really quick 
right? And this might not be new to you, but it bears repeating. The word baptism is a particular word. In the Greek, it's baptisma. It's, that's the noun. But the verb, the action, is baptizo. Baptizo. And the root of that is bap. B-A-P in the modern bap. According to the entry on that in uh, the Dictionary of the Gospels, which is a source I use quite often, that simple bap, which means to dip, like washing one's hands, is only used three times in the New Testament. But baptizo is an intense version of that. It's an intense version of that. It means to dunk, right? To dunk and actually have submerged for some time. That's used 77 times in the New Testament, talking about this. So, what's the easiest way to remember this? Baptizo is being pickled. Being pickled. And you might remember this from last year, because I say this every year. But we get this from a source from the second century, from the first century, rather, from Let's see, no, 200 B.C., the 3rd century. So, Nicander, a Greek poet and physician, uses the word baptizo 200 years before Jesus, before John the Baptist. And he says this, he says that in order to make a pickle, one should first be dipped, bapto, into boiling water, and then baptized, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. Both verbs are about immersing, but one is temporary and the other produces a permanent change. So, friends, you're a pickle if you're baptized. You're not a cucumber that was held under water. You're a pickle. There's been a permanent change in you. Once a pickle is soaked in that bucket of brine, it's never a cucumber again. The change is permanent. And so, baptism has pickled you. It's changed you. In more appetizing language of the New Testament, it's made you a new creation. Oh, it's true. You can walk away from it. You can become what we call apostate, right? But you can't unbaptize yourself, right? You can't unbaptize yourself. Once you've been pickled, you're pickled. And you're always a pickle. And if you're an apostate, guess what? You're still, still a pickle. You're just a rotten pickle. Now don't be a rotten pickle. You could end the sermon there. But I'll go on. Even the Jews understood this permanency of baptism. They understood that it was all about repentance but they also understood that it brought about a permanent change. It was tied in the Old Testament law with, the, with circumcision. So if someone wanted to become a Jew, they would be, if they were a man, circumcised in accordance with the old law and then baptized to denote a permanent change, a permanent washing of themselves. But John the Baptist is building on that idea. And he says... Remember back in the third week of Advent, earlier in the Gospel that we read today, so this is also chapter 3 of Luke, verse 8, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he talked to the tax collectors and the soldiers, right? But 
there was a fruit. There was something that came out of this permanent change. And that brings us to the next point, that the baptism of Jesus doesn't just bring change, but it brings life. John the Baptist's baptisms were all about repentance, but Jesus adds something to that. Again, look at the Gospel passage today, this time, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Look what John the Baptist says. John answered them all when they were asking if he was the Christ. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus' baptism is not merely one of repentance, although it is that, but it's also one of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has no need to repent, remember? And yet he goes through it anyway for our sake. And so, we continue on with verse 21. Now, when the people were all baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, that is Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The descent of the third person of the Trinity himself, the Holy Spirit, comes down upon Jesus as he's praying after being baptized. And then a voice from heaven basically endorses him, saying, pay attention to this guy. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, that by itself is a powerful image. You know, we don't generally see the Holy Spirit in physical manifestation as a dove or a voice from heaven booming down at us, right? We could all agree that's not a common day occurrence. And yet, there's more going on here if you take into account the Old Testament lesson today. What does God the Father say booming from heaven? He uses words like chosen, right? And my spirit is upon him. Now look back at Isaiah chapter 42, our first, our first lesson from the Old Testament. And we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord writes through Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That should be ringing in your ears from the gospel. I have put my spirit upon him. Oh, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he will faithfully bring forth justice. Can there be any doubt, friends, that this prophecy of Isaiah 42 is being fulfilled in the gospel passage today? in the baptism of Jesus? In my mind, there cannot be. And that's an amazing thing. But what's the significance of Jesus' baptism for us? How does it inform our baptism? The last point. Well, 
as we've said, Jesus doesn't need to repent, but we do. Jesus is without sin, but we're sinful indeed, even in addition to sinning. And Jesus' commission begins here. And so John the Baptist preaches repentance, as does Jesus. And forgiveness comes along with this repentance because of Jesus. The Old Testament is a hopeless, is a hopeless um, record of man's trying to not sin. And so Jesus picks that up as the perfect man and is baptized, though he is sinless. When Jesus is baptized, he makes it unnecessary for us to be rebaptized every time we sin. Because, just as we partake in his one body and one sacrifice in the sacrament of communion, so we partake of his one perfect baptism when we're baptized. That's why we see baptism not just as something that accompanies our repentance, right? It's not just something we do after we say the sinner's prayer. That would be an error, I would say, because it looks at it incompletely. We're just going to err and get dirty again, right? We're going to sin again. But rather, baptism is a sacramental gift. And so, unlike American evangelicals who see baptism just as something that kind of is an afterthought, accompanying one's repentance, we see it rather as the transformative thing that it is bringing us into communion with God. Baptism can never be undone. And it can never be legitimately had more than once. So, some people rebaptize. Have, have you ever run across that? that? That's foolishness. I'll say that from the pulpit. That's foolishness. There is one baptism. If you were baptized properly the first time around, that can't be undone. You've been pickled, to go back to the old analogy. It's not dependent upon your repentance. It's dependent upon God's grace. Don't confuse, friends, the sacrament of baptism with the sacramental rite of penance. We have a sacramental right for when we sin. It's that we come before the Father and confess to Him. But our baptism remains. And also, don't fall into the second error about baptism that so many Americans seem to fall into. There's this erroneous belief amongst Pentecostals and Charismatics that you need a second baptism. Have you ever, have you heard this? That you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Nonsense. If you were baptized, the Holy Spirit came and, and indwelt you. The Holy Spirit is with you in your baptism. Now, you might not be listening to him. You might not be following him. But you have him. He is part of you. So don't fall into that bad theology about baptism. The Holy Spirit is with you, and he's in you, dwelling in you. In fact, in Acts chapter 10 we see God send the Holy Spirit even before people are baptized. So, I'll leave that there. Baptism is a sacrament, is the point. It's a gift by God through grace. It's not something that you can earn, and it's not something that you can keep. It's something that you're given. 
And so we, as Anglicans, hold to the 39 article statement that baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that not be, be not christened, but it's also a sign of regeneration, a sign of new birth, whereby as an instrument we receive baptism and are grafted into the church given the promises of forgiveness of sin and are adopted to be sons of the Holy Ghost, visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. So Jesus submitting to baptism completes baptism itself. It brings to us the fullness of the gift. He puts that second part into it, whereby we receive not just a washing and a cleansing, but a indwelling, a filling of the Holy Spirit. Two permanent changes wrapped into one. Jesus himself, if it's helpful to think of it this way, transforms baptism. He is not transformed by baptism. Does that make sense? Jesus is God. Jesus transforms baptism. He's not transformed by baptism. He transforms John's baptism into a full baptism. As Bishop Maximus of Turin said in 380 A.D., Christ was baptized not to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy. And his cleansing to purify the waters he touched. Christ is the first to be baptized then, so that Christians will follow after him with confidence, he says. Do you have that confidence in your baptism, Christians? Do you have that? Do you understand the gift that you've been given? It's not to be piddled around with or short or shorted. Why do we bless holy water? Why do we bless ourselves during Epiphany? Why do we bless our houses to remind us that we are extensions of Christ's baptism in this world? As baptized and converted Christians, we are agents. You are agents of Christ through his baptism. Your adopted sons and daughters. And we don't want other people to live a life without that grace. We don't want other people to try to be good without the power of the Holy Spirit because we can't be good. No one can be good without God. And so, friends, you are agents of Christ's grace. As I have put my spirit upon him, God says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And you and I are privileged to be part of that plan. And so I want to leave you now with a final verse from T.S. Eliot. In this Choruses from the Rock poem, we find out that the rock is Jesus Christ. Out of the formless stone, he writes, when the artist united himself with stone, spring always new forms of life. From the soul of man, that is joined to the soul of stone. Out of the meaningless, practical shapes of all that is living or lifeless, joined with the artist's eye, new life, new form 
new color. That is you, a new creation as an adopted son or daughter of Jesus. Live into it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.